Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another special edition of the podcast. As you know, every so often we talk to an author of a book we think is especially important. In this case, the author is a regular guest, not only on our show, but on many of the shows you watch on MSNBC and elsewhere. That's Tom Nichols, a professor at the Naval War College, who is the author of a new book called Our Own Worst Enemy. Hi, Tom. How are you doing? I'm good, David. Thanks for having me. No, no, it's it's great to have you. It's a great book. It's an important topic. I think I'm going to approach it from a slightly different perspective than some of the others that I've heard, because as I was reading it, you know, it struck me that it's kind of an interesting thing that you, with your background and training, have ended up being one of the foremost critics of our political culture. And I was wondering, you know, to what extent you think there are, are roots for that in work you did studying things like the fall of the Soviet Union? Yeah, that is an interesting um, journey I took. I mean, I uh, started off especially in the 80s when I began my career, convinced of the superiority of the Western systems of government and liberal democracy, and I still am. But I came to realize, I think, that institutions only take you so far, that political culture, that, that governments really are, and really do remain rooted in political cultures, that you can't simply, maybe that actually has a lot to do as well with what happened in the 90s and the 2000s, where we tried to implant democracy in places where it simply wasn't, it couldn't take root. I suppose in the big argument among political scientists about what comes first, institutions or culture, I have finally over the years come down on the side of culture, that institutions can help nurture culture, they can help protect a democratic culture, but they can't create one. And if that culture dies, the institutions are not going to save you. Yeah, I think one of the things about the book and I think this is also interesting in light of the journey that you just talked about, is that while it's extremely critical and it has that patented, no-holds-barred Tom Nichols voice throughout, you remain, I think, kind of optimistic. You know, I, I, I read the book and I think, why would Tom go to the trouble of writing this critique if he didn't believe we could fix it? Yeah, and it's interesting because there is. There is some anger in the book, but there's also a lot of sadness. Uh, and I think that's where the anger came from. You know, what is, what is that they say about depression, that it's merely um, sublimated anger? And I think that there's an element of that in the book that I, especially because of my background, not in Soviet studies, but, it, you know, growing up in a blue collar working class town where I grew up believing that this was the backbone of democracy, that, you know, the common person that democracy wasn't, didn't rest on the shoulders of the faculty at Cornell or UCLA. It didn't rest on the shoulders 
of, you know, the very poorest fishermen, but rather in that kind of sturdy working and middle class that was scattered throughout America. And I guess watching not just the Trump era, I mean, this is really not a book about the Trump era. This is a book about the last 30 or 40 years. Watching that culture decay into something decadent and lazy and entitled, it made me sad and it made me angry. But I suppose being innately conservative in the sense that I believe in a fixed human nature, there is an optimism. I don't really believe, and I say this right in the preface, I don't really believe anybody really wants to live this way. I don't think this is the natural order of things. I don't have that kind of pessimistic view that left to their own devices, human beings prefer to live in a crab bucket. So there is an optimism, and I do think it's it, it can be remedied. But I really thought it was important to start by saying that we have to stop blaming all of these external factors. We have to stop bitching about the elites and globalization and television and the internet. And, you know, all of those things have their place. And I talk about them all in the book. But in the end, democracy is an act of will. And an act of will begins with a human being who makes decisions, who has agency and power and reason and rationality and ability. And that's where I wanted people to look. I wanted them to look inward first, rather than to look for scapegoats and excuses. I think if I took away one message, it's voter heal thyself. Yeah, be angry at Trump. Yeah, be angry at Mitch McConnell. Be angry at your leaders. Consider people in the Democratic Party feckless in getting their message through or fighting for what's important. You can come up with a different critique for elites throughout the course of the past 30 or 40 years that you're talking about. But even in that sense, in order as we look at it in that context of voter heal thyself, What's driven the downward trajectory of the culture? Where do you lay the blame for this beyond saying each of us has our share of the blame? Narcissism. Growing narcissism. Something that we can track empirically, by the way. I mean, there have been a few folks over the months who read some of these arguments and they've said, well, you know, that's just that's just your jaundiced view. And it's not. It's actually something that social psychologists have traced in multiple countries, including the United States, since the late 70s. And the first major book on narcissism, Christopher Lash's, I mean, you know, talk about a creed occur and, you know, the angry, no holds barred approach. Christopher Lash first writes The Culture of Narcissism, and it appears in 1979. I mean, Lash is already looking back over a decade or two of this and saying, my God, what's happened to us as we're reaching the end of the 1970s? And I think that narcissism was held in check by some important realities. First, that we had people who had experienced real deprivation, the Great Depression, World War II. These generational traumas were, in a way, made petty grievances seem almost silly by comparison. We have an extended period of peace and prosperity and expansion. And that begins after the fall of the Soviet Union. It's almost like things become so good that we can just stop taking things seriously. We don't worry anymore. We don't have arguments about electing a president by talking about the finger on the nuclear trigger, even though that's still part of the job. That's still a really important part of it. Over 30 years, we've said, ah, you know, who cares about that? That's not really an important issue anymore. We argue about the economy. 
But we argue about it in terms of justice, which is perfectly, I think that's the way an affluent society should argue about it. But we're, we don't really argue about living standards anymore because our living standards, even within a single lifetime, have risen so dramatically that we're now left arguing about relative income rather than literally people dying. We have remarkably elevated our sense of entitlement and expectation of government to the level of complete unreality. And so I think, I mean, it would be too easy to say, well, you know, times were good and we just got fat and lazy. There is some of that. But I also think that we are the victims of our own success and that over multiple generations, we've simply forgotten how that success was achieved. And instead, we've been encouraged and we've been encouraged by consumerism. I I have to say that the book, for all of that people think I'm reliably conservative, book's actually a critique of capitalism in some ways, that we've commodified everything and we've marketized everything, but also that we just live in a world that has allowed us to not think about where the edges of, of real danger are anymore. And that's, that's understandable. That To some extent, that's normal. And in that sense, I'm really not pointing the finger too hard at everyone. I'm trying to, I'm, instead, I'm trying to say, look, be aware that this happened. Regain your situational awareness. Because we have been encouraged by political entrepreneurs to really believe that we live in the worst of all possible times, which is insane. You know, it's one thing to say, yes, there are real problems. Yes, times are good. Yes, there are pockets of places where things are awful. It's another thing entirely to look around, even after a pandemic in 2021, and say, you know, these are just the worst times ever. To be able to say that is an act of such childishness and willful stupidity that it has to be confronted somehow. And I tried to do that in the book because democracy cannot keep up with that kind of level of expectation. That's why I talk about nostalgia in the book as well. Democracy cannot keep up with false nostalgia that says, the only way my government and my system of government is legitimate is if the world is as good as I think it was in 1971. Because that's just, that's just crazy. And you can't sustain a democratic government on that level of self-delusion. You just can't. Well, it's not just you know nostalgia. It's also another subject that you have written about, which is kind of intellectual laziness, lack of rigor. You know, you talk about your journey. I think for many of your you know people who've become your fans and followers, that an interesting and traceable journey is the journey from your last book, The Death of Expertise, which I think is kind of the definitive book on its kind and really triggered an important conversation in the country, the journey from there to here seems to me to be kind of a straight line. There's no doubt about it. You know, when I finished Death of Expertise and the book turned out to be a a hit and that was great, people said, okay, get out there and write another book, right? When you've had a book that does well, immediately people jump on you and say, okay, write another book. I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to say next. And instead, for once in my life, I did more listening than talking, which for me is pretty unusual. And as I was going around giving presentations about the book, what I, what I heard in the questions and the discussions was, how can we go on like this as a democracy? How can, the, how can this sustain a democracy? And I kept finding myself nodding and saying, well, it can't. And as I said right in the outset of Our Own Worst Enemy, this question about democracy and the stability of democracy 
was lurking underneath the death of expertise. It was like this travel. It was like a shadow that was just going with that book and the issues that it raised. And I finally, a few years after that, I just sat down and I said, you know, I really want to think more about this because there's something just going terribly wrong. And it's not just because we are less informed because we are spending too much time on the internet, because we prize ignorance as a virtue, as I say in the previous book. And so, yeah, there was a journey that mostly I was taken along by people who had read The Death of Expertise and said, this is giving me the willies about democracy. And I kept hearing that and saying, you know, me too. But there's a bigger issue here about democracy. And the linking, the connecting tissue between the two of them is this problem of narcissism. People resist knowledge and they don't want to be care about facts and they don't want to encounter anyone who has dispositive knowledge about something because it offends them, because it makes them feel excluded and it makes them feel like they're not omni-competent and omniscient about everything. That has extended into the way we think about democracy, which is that it's about me. It's about what I want. It's not about a community. It's not about civic behavior. It's about what I think in any given moment. And if anybody doesn't like that, then go to hell. I think you're right. There's narcissism and there's a degree of it's about me, but it's a it's a view of it's about me that doesn't carry with it any corresponding sense of responsibility. Well, that's um, the nature of a narcissist. Right, right. It's and, only and, about me. Right. Well, I think, you know, I, as you were talking about it, I was I was thinking in the book and in life on a fairly regular basis, you describe yourself as a conservative. And certainly the ideals that underpin this book, self-reliance, you're also a New England conservative. That's a very New England conservative perspective. The small lost tribe that wanders the Berkshires, yes. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and other parts. I'm in Cambridge today. There are a few here. But I think that's something conservative. But beyond that, I think labels like conservative and liberal have completely lost their meaning in this in this dialogue. And, you know, I read your your I think of myself as a liberal. You think of yourself as a conservative. I read what you write and I think, no, this is a sensible guy talking about the truth and the real dividing line in the political debate for me seems to be between people who believe in facts and the truth and certain kinds of old-fashioned principles of intellectual honesty, and everybody else. As you were saying this, David, I was thinking of one of the greatest high school teachers I ever had who introduced me to books like 1984 and Brave New World. He is, he's, we're still friends to this day, and he's, a, he's like a radical lefty. You know, he's old school, he's a Vietnam-era veteran, you know, all that stuff. And I said to him one time, I said, Paul, how are we even friends? And he said, you're a lover of the truth. So am I. That's enough. You know, we, we just agree on that. And, you know, it turns out we're better friends than that. But he, he, he struck something important that I think does speak to this moment in American politics, where conservative and liberal, those are policy preferences that come out of some, some basic differences about things like human nature. But underlying it all is the notion of a rational discussion about Things like human nature, the, the structure of a good society, uh, the effects of policy choices, the degree to which human beings have agency or are, you know, victims of institutions and so on. We agree on the rules of discussion. We agree on the basic nature of reality. And we most importantly, we agree on 
the importance that our love of the American experiment and the importance of defending the constitutional heritage in the United States. That used to transcend liberal and conservative. And I feel like that is what I have in common with my friends that came with me on the right, away from you know, the Trumpist right and the Republicans. That's what I have in common with my friends now who identify themselves with people of the left who have come out of the Democratic Party. We don't really even think in terms of those labels anymore. We, we think in terms of truth, the American project, the right order of a good society, and so on. And I agree with you. I mean, I find that the people I have a hard time talking with are not people who disagree with me about politics, but people that I feel like I'm talking to who are mildly psychotic in their inability to comprehend reality. I mean, it's like where you just have to, I have literally now more more times in the past five or six years than I have in my life said, I just have to stop this conversation. I cannot have this conversation. There is no room to progress here. And I talked about that in the death of expertise. When people say, well, let's just agree to disagree. Inevitably, I find myself saying, no, I I do not agree to disagree. I refuse to accept that. I had the same experience myself. People who are very close friends and they would say to me, well, you know, this vaccine thing is a hoax, you know, or whatever, you know, and they, and, and it's like, literally the conversation has to stop there because you've lost all common ground. When you say, no, it's not a hoax. They say, let's agree to disagree. And I say, no, I refuse to agree to disagree. You are wrong. You are delusional. And that is where this conversation ends. And I'm sorry that we don't share a common notion of reality. But I am not simply going to wave this away as we're agreeing to disagree. You have a fundamental problem with reality. And that, you know, people find that off-putting, but, you know, so be it. Yeah, no, no. It's I Sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm accused of sacrilege because I will attack one of the great icons of American liberalism, and that's Oprah Winfrey, who on a regular basis says to people, well, you have your own truth. <laughs> And it's like, there is no your own truth. There's truth. And yet, even, you know, the people who are supposed to be arbiters of that, like journalists, have lost sight of it and have come to the conclusion, based on a twisted view of what politics used to be, that if one political group has one cosmology and the other political group has another cosmology, they're both entitled to their own cosmology, even though there's only one cosmos. One of the things that I wanted to do in um, Our Own Worst Enemy that I had shied away from in the death of expertise, and I, and I appreciate that you're seeing the, the connection between the two of them, because it was, it was difficult. I, I, I have to tell you, I was actually blocked on writing this book for months because I didn't want to come, keep coming to the conclusions I was coming to. I kept trying to prove that I was wrong, you know, like in, a, in the scholarly mode. I kept saying, OK, that can't be right. I'm going to do this over again. But one of the things that I decided that I just had to do, and this is partly why the book is a little more autobiographical, because it's it's a very personal approach to it, was to say, I know this will make you angry. I know this is something you don't want to think about. I know this is not, not a comfortable thing to understand about ourselves, but we're going to have to just do it now. We're going to have to go down this road, and we're going to have to talk about how your nostalgia is nonsense. We're going to have to talk about how your sense of grievance is overinflated. That's not, and again, that was not to say there aren't poor people in America, that there is not a health crisis, that education isn't horrifically expensive. 
but that we have to stop enabling each other in this game of escalating grievance. And I felt like this was the book where I kind of wanted to put my foot down, at least about understanding the nature of the problem before even thinking about solutions. I, I just, I felt like it just, it was just time to stop this. And the, the reason I think thought of this is what you were just saying about journalism. I thought it was time to stop saying on the one hand, on the other. At some point, this whole project had become so detached from reality that it makes you fall down the rabbit hole trying to be even-handed about it. And I just don't think there's any point in that. Yeah. And for those many, many people who sort of follow you actively on Twitter or, um, you know, in other media who may be outraged by your opinions on Indian food or (laughs) 70s music, you know, the ability of you to go and float those things out there and take the abuse has hardened you to be able to tell these truths. Well, and, you know, it's okay to, to, you know, when, I mean, if the Trump people were right about anything, it's the notion of snowflakes, right? Except that, of course, the Trump people are the biggest snowflakes in the world. But we have become a very delicate society. Part of the thing I miss about the America that I knew even 25 or 30 years ago, I mean, there was a time where, where two guys like you and you and me would sit down in a room to talk about some issue of public importance, and we would beat the crap out of each other. I mean, we would just we would just swing big, heavy, you know, lead bricks at each other and then say, OK, and, and then go, you know, and say, all right, well, we did our best and I hope we've both learned and, you know, let's continue the conversation and we'd go out and have a drink. We have completely lost the ability to disagree with each other because we take disagreement so personally that we take disagreement because of that constant sense of narcissistic injury. You know, I disagree with you about, I don't know, you know, um, climate change. Well, you're a monster. I disagree with you about critical race theory. Well, you're trying to brainwash my kids. Because everybody has to be the hero of their own story. There was almost a kind of, in the kind of discussions that you and I remember in younger days, there was really this sense of sort of putting your ego to the side and just taking your lumps, you know, that if you were going to sit down and talk to somebody across the table who was different, that you, you went into it with good faith and you understood that they were going to land a few punches, that you're not perfect, that you're, you're going to be wrong about things now and then. I think we've completely lost that. We've lost, we, now everyone who wanders into the, the public square believes that they are wearing a suit of shining armor and that they are completely unassailable. And it's, it's childlike. This is the, I keep coming back to this word. It's childlike. Adults know how to argue with each other, take the occasional you know, clip to the jaw and say, yeah, you know, you know David, you had a good point there. Ouch. But we, we simply don't do that anymore because we are not an adult political culture. We are a political culture of aggrieved children. The reality is the reason that you and I would engage in a conversation then or now on an issue in which we might not agree is that we could acknowledge to ourselves that we might be wrong and that, you know, intellectual rigor and humility are linked and that, you know, part of the dialectic, part of the debate is that we believe that through it, we'll understand things better, that by allowing our ideas to be challenged, will gain. But and we may even be more confirmed in how right we think we are. 
part of a good intellectual argument is that you understand your own argument better when it's over because you've had to make it. You've had to defend it. But I think the other part of that is that you assume that the person across the table from you is basically a good person. And I tell this story right at the beginning of our own worst enemy about my dad was a 94 year old bigot, a man, you know, Archie Bunker on steroids, the whole nine yards. And yet at the end of his life, as Romney was losing to Obama, my father, by the way, never once Obama became president, never set up, never said anything deprecating. He was, this is what I mean, too, about old school and norms and civic virtue. My father never dropped racial invective about Barack Obama as president because you just didn't talk that way about the president. And my dad's watching this. And I said, you know, dad, I, and I, as I said, I tell this story in the book. I said, I, I think Obama's going to win. this. And, and my father said, they're both good men. We're going to be fine. No matter what happens, we're going to be fine. They're good men. We have completely lost that. We now, again, in this very childlike world, there are only cowboys and there are only Indians. There are only, uh, you know, the good guys and the bad guys. And you cannot sustain a democracy on that. We have liberal democracy with a small L. I mean, I don't need you've written extensively on this, David, and I don't need to tell you this, but tolerance and a willingness to accept less than ideal outcomes for yourself is crucial to living in a democracy. And that's completely gone. We, we now live in a world where if things don't go your way, you believe that you have a right to burn down, not just vote the government out of office, which is perfectly normal and fine, but rather to burn down the, the actual structure of the system, because if it didn't give you what you wanted, therefore it must be unjust and rigged. Yeah, and I don't, you know, I don't think this is new, but I, the, the reality is that in the world of social media, you are your ideas. You go, you present an idea. If people don't like it, they take a shot at you. And so you, you, you don't have any distance between yourself and the idea to try and accept that it could be challenged. And that's crucial. In fact, compromise in a democracy is impossible without it. So you need that. So. We only got a couple of minutes more, sadly. I encourage everybody, as I said at the outset, to go. Can I say one thing about social media before we move yeah, on from that? Yeah, yeah, of course. Very quickly. You know, the other thing, and I wish I'd said more about this in the book, but the thing I'm starting to realize about social media is the time factor. Part of the problem with social media and email, because I get a lot of you know hate mail, there is nothing that enforces a pause for reflection, because that's part of this process as well. If you have a completely harsh thought, there's nothing stopping you from transmitting it publicly instantaneously. You know, in the old days when I got hate mail, I used to get I used to get hate mail, you know, from regular correspondence, and they actually had to go get an envelope and write a letter and put a stamp on it. And that actually took you some time. And I think a lot of people cooled off between writing a letter and going and getting a stamp. We've lost that completely. And it may, means that people have to double down on the worst version of themselves all the time. There are a lot of analogies to that with way, you know, a stories to write something, to put it in a newspaper and to have it get out took a while. That distance gave you some perspective. You know, today, as I was driving up here, there was a shooting in a school and the guy's on the air and he has to make shit up. Yeah. About what's ha- he doesn't know what's happening. 
He just has to, you know, fill the air with some perspective based on no facts. And then the next two hours are corrections to the first hour. Well, exactly. Anyway, my final point here is, or, you know, my final question here is to ask you a little bit about the prescriptive part of this. Because, you know, it's one thing to say we have to accept responsibility, and and it's another thing to say that this has evolved over a long, long time. But, you know, is there a way out? You know, part of the reason I was blocked on the book for so long is that I didn't want to get to an ending where there was no way out. The ending is the most pessimistic part. Because I invoke a lot of the classics, Brave New World, 1984, and so on. But as I say, Neil Postman's amusing ourselves to death and so on. But as I say in the book, Brave New World is already here. We have already abdicated a large chunk of our civic duty with sex and drugs and calories and leisure and frothy entertainments. So that horse is already out of the barn. What I recommend at the end of the book, and there's, you know, I won't go into them. Readers can find it at the end. I I recommend two or three projects that I think are small and achievable. I think one mistake that books about democracy keep making is that at the end, the author says, and here is how I will restructure the entire constitution of the United States. Here is how I will wave a wand And with one generation of, you know, new classes in a high school, I will produce armies of civic citizens. It doesn't work that way. And so I tried to pick things that I think are kind of middle level projects that have to do with the military, that have to do with the structure of Congress, that have to do with how parties run themselves, that I think are within reach and doable and actually force us to work together across party lines and to think not locally and not nationally, but maybe at that middle level of across a few towns or within a state, because I had to start somewhere. Too many of us have said, you know, I don't know, I'm not paying attention to the bond issue in my hometown because I'm too busy worrying about whether they're teaching critical race theory across the country 3,000 miles away, because that's fun and it's interesting and it makes me feel heroic. So I tried to pick things that I thought were useful but didn't leave a lot of space for theatrics. Well, you know, I, by the way, I, I just want to say, you know, I read it. And I, I, I agree with the, the, the prescriptive stuff for the most part. But just to go a step further, the solution to our problems is bottom up. It's not top down. Right. Exactly. The way our system is rigged, there is not going to be a third party. There's not going to be somebody on a white horse. We are not going to get away from money and politics and some of these things that have corrupted us unless we do it from the ground up. And if you really want to change American politics, change a couple congressional districts and have those Congress people actually be the balance of power in a closely contested Congress. You have a better chance, you know, within a 50 mile radius of your house, working with people, you know, to change the way the country goes than you do trying to wave your magic wand and reimagine things from the top down. Absolutely. Stop thinking that. I mean, I was just thinking this the other day when Andrew Yang said, oh, I'm going to go there, but, you know, okay, great, whatever. Um, you know, stop looking for the one savior. And, and this, this is a bipartisan problem. Democrats did it with Barack Obama. They, the Republicans did it with Donald Trump. Stop looking for the demigod who is going to relieve you of the daily burden of having to read a goddamn newspaper. 
because I think that's a big part of it. It's that people just don't, you know, they don't want to do even the basic amount of work that, again, I think a previous generation, I, I, don't, I, I will say that some previous generations at least took delight in. You know, voting in my house was a big deal. It was like almost like a celebratory thing because, you know, our family, we were an immigrant family. My parents were the children of immigrants. You know, voting was like this, practically like a holiday for us. You know, I think that's exactly right, David. I mean, because we're in heated agreement here at the end. Um, you know, stop looking for the last son of Krypton to float down out of the sky and somehow make this okay. It's not going to happen. It has to start with you. Right. And also, unless it starts with you, it's, it's not going to happen. You know, I mean, it's you've got to you have to start caring about the school board and you have to start caring about the local property assessments and you have to start caring about civics at that level before you can do this other stuff. And there's a long history of American political leaders who did just that. And it's boring. You know, but that's the thing. And I keep trying to tell people I've worked in politics at all three levels of government, you know, local, state, federal. And, and when I try to explain to people, they say, yeah, what can I do? And I said, look, you're going to have to increase your tolerance for boredom, because especially in state government, where so much gets done, it's boring, but it's necessary. You can do you can move mountains at the state level of government if you have the perseverance to pay attention to it. Well, so you can't move the federal government without caring about the grassroots. So my first job was as a press secretary to a congressman, and he was a big foreign policy guy. And I was like, okay, I want to talk to you about Israel policy. And he was like, great, write me a press release on the, uh, the escalator in the subway station. <laughs> and, 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 and I was like, why? I don't care about the escalator in the subway station. And he was like, yeah, but the voters care about the escalator in the subway station. When I was in the Clinton administration, we were selling NAFTA. You can talk about free trade and it means nothing. We had to break it down to congressional district and lower and say, this means 365 jobs in your neighborhood. And then people are like, oh, now I get it. My first day on the job working in state government, I, the very first thing I had to do was find a way to get some guy's mom uh, into the nursing home and like straighten out her, you know, Medicare problem. And I was like, wow, I, I thought, you know, we were going to be downstairs arguing about, you know, Federalist 65 or something. No, what, you know, and by the way, get that other guy a handicap plate. That's what we do here. And then we solve the big stuff down the line. And, you know, we, we, doing budgets and the other things. And, you know, I, I had exactly that same experience of, you know, I want, I want to talk about the big stuff. Well, you know what? We take care of the little stuff and then we get to the big stuff. And yeah, we, I think we could go on agreeing and vehemently agreeing here for some time. I'm going to have to end with one last story of this, though, because you just reminded I was at this desk. The congressman was named Stephen Solars. And I was at this desk in his office in Brooklyn and uh, just sort of near Coney Island in Brooklyn. And there was a guy at the desk behind me and he, I, it was my first day and he picks up the phone and he's like, yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. No, let me write this down, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. And he goes, oh, well, that's very serious, ma'am. And he says, well, you know, ma'am, I think this is a police matter and you really <laughs> should refer to the police and here's the number. And he hangs up the phone and I turned to him thinking again, we've dealt with something really big. And I said, what happened? And he said, well, this little old lady 
said that there was cream cheese on a plate in a refrigerator and it was gone now. And, and, you know, it was that's what the congressional office is about. It's about taking that call. Yep. And and it took me a while to realize it, but it's directly related to the thesis of your book. The book is Our Own Worst Enemy. I strongly encourage everybody to read it because it provides an insight into what we really have to fix if we want to get out of this critical existential crisis that we're in as a democracy. Tom Nichols is a great writer. He tells a great story. And I strongly, strongly encourage you to get the book. Congratulations on the book. I'm glad you got over your writer's block and the process block and getting it out there. You know, you can find this book wherever, wherever you order such things, local bookstore or uh, Amazon. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back uh, tomorrow with uh, another of our regular broadcasts. If you want to find out more of what we're doing, go to the DSRnetwork.com. Uh, And while you're there, click on membership if you would like to do a little bit to support conversations like this one. Thanks, Tom. Thanks, everybody. And uh, stay healthy out there. Bye-bye.